Hello, and welcome to another episode of the How to Scale a Business podcast. My name is Hector Santi Esteban, and I am your host for today, and our special guest, Mr. Jay Franzi. We're going to talk about operations and how that play into scaling your business. Jay, thanks for hanging out with us today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The context is always important. A lot of people that we bring on the show have a, what they're doing now, maybe they're doing it for the last several years or a number of years. The beginnings of that usually started decades before. How far back does your kind of operational sort of experience go? And then catch us up a little bit now on what you're doing. I've been working in the entertainment industry for about 35-ish years. Worked primarily in Nashville, but before that I worked in New York and Boston. So I spent the past 20 years in Nashville. And as the music industry has changed, I worked as an audio engineer and an artist development specialist. And as that career path for the musician has changed and the way that music gets out to the fan base these days and the way people are able to record at home and so on, it's really changed the way music production is done. So I've tried to transition with it. And what I've done is I've gone from working in the recording studio for the primary portion of my day to then trying to go on the road and handle the logistics and the transportation and the security. And as that has developed, I've spent the past decade overseeing the security, not only for musicians when they're on the road, but for large tech companies, I was housed in Silicon Valley for the past three years where I would oversee the security for the big tech firms like Facebook and Google and so on. And, and when I say security, physical security, the boots on the ground, the people, anything from the actual person who sits at the front desks and says hello and grants you access to the building to the undercover people who are walking around the campus that you wouldn't even know were there unless you had a reason for knowing. That's what the past 30 plus years have been like for me. A lot of listeners are sitting there thinking, if they're like me, they're like, this is really interesting. And I'm so excited to see where this conversation goes. But for the odd listener who's going, what the hell does that have to do with business? From the outset, is there a lot of parallels that you see from how you might organize and really orchestrate the security of these sorts of things, whether it's events or offices or however you're doing it, and then how a business in the digital space who's got a, a remote team or a service-based company, are there parallels that you see that they might be able to pull over into their businesses? Oh, absolutely. First of all, the entertainment business is the key word there being a business. And we would work with large teams of people on projects Working in Nashville, they were country artists, the ones that you would hear on the radio, would have hundreds of people working on those projects. And it would be anywhere from the engineers, the assistants, the producers, working on a production side. But then you would also have the publishing companies and the record companies working on the business side. And then you'd have those people like myself who worked in development that would bridge the gap between the two. So I'd work in the production side and then also in the business side. Doing that, you're managing projects that are probably... Anywhere from on the low end, say five to $10,000 to the high end, which are probably about $100,000 to $150,000. So you're basically running a project that is worth quite a bit of money in somebody's eyes. So that's what I would consider the project management side of the entertainment industry. But on the security side, my book of business was $150 million, $158 million a year, which is more than what most companies have as a whole. 
And it was my responsibility to not only manage that book of business, but to grow that book of business. So when I took it over three years prior to that point, it had $132 million worth of revenue coming in. And I was able to grow that up to $158 million within over three years, I would say overall. But that's quite a bit of growth and that's quite a bit of money to manage. So there's large complex teams when it comes to managing a security industry or a security firm. We would have anything from myself that would oversee the entire organization or at least the West Coast portion of that organization. We would have a team of operations managers under me, our director of operations under me. Then we'd have the operations managers under them and then you'd have the account managers under them. And then the supervisors and shift supervisors and frontline employees, you'd have all of these people. And then you'd also have the executive protection team and the ones that handle high-risk scenarios. And then you'd have the clients themselves that we'd also have to manage. And the clients were global. Facebook is a global organization. I handled what we called our strategic accounts, which were any accounts that had a global footprint. They were headquartered in Silicon Valley, and they had over $10 million worth of service a year. So each one of those was one organization could dream of as a whole. And we had multiple of those. Like I said, it was $158 million in revenue a year. And if you think about that compared to your average small firm, you might be lucky to have $50 million worth of revenue in a year. So to have 158 for just one section of an organization was a pretty big deal. There are a lot of crossovers. It becomes a people business. It really becomes a leadership business. It becomes a work. A lot of it is working through people and systems and very much in line with what I'm sure we've talked a lot about on this show. A lot of industries have things that were created as a necessity because of that industry, especially pre-internet stuff. I came from the sales industry and there were certain things that sales organizations did that I was like, if every organization did this, it would probably benefit them. But it was siloed to the sales industry because that was what was necessary to succeed there. Are there any things that you feel could carry over from the security industry or business that you feel is very particular to that industry, but that could also work across other niches? There's a lot. There's the general business side, which is your typical leadership development and the communication within the organization, not overlook different silos within the organization, whether that be the sales team, the operations team, the administration side, the HR department communication between all of those. But if you're looking for specific to the industry, things like risk management is big across all industries as well. But in the security industry, we've obviously focused on risk management and where potential issues might arise. And it could be anything from identifying a particular vehicle that enters your property. And we would have low ground cameras that would pick up license plates. We would have cameras throughout parking lots that would detect areas that people might be parking in, people that might be in an area that they shouldn't be in that would allow us to identify where a potential break-in might occur, something like that. But then we also have these giant global command centers that would look like something out of NASA with maybe 100 televisions in front of you, big wall of screens. And each one of them would be monitoring a different country, a different facility in a different country, and different type portions of that building, whether it be a portion of a building that might have something valuable within. It might be something that we need to keep an eye on, say, an IT room to make sure that there's no issues. When I say issues, I'm not talking technical issues, maybe things like smoke where it might get too hot within a room. Somebody needs to keep an eye on that type of stuff. 
You can go anywhere from the general leadership stuff to the really specific stuff within an industry. But I think the biggest thing that would help anybody that across any industry is what we would call an after action review. And that's after every meeting we would have. And after every meeting with a client, we would have quarterly business reviews. We'd go in, meet with the client, make sure that we're delivering the service that they're expecting and make sure that there's nothing else that we could identify that they need or nothing that they would bring to the table. But when we would leave that meeting, managers would come up to me and say, they're the ones running the meeting. How do you think I did? And my comment to them was always, how do you think you did? Let's talk about it a little bit more. And let's take this from a different angle. Rather than me just grading you on, did you perform A, B, and C? How do you think you handled it? How do you think the client received it? Let's talk about it a little bit deeper and let's do some leadership development in that manner. I think that's much more important than whether or not you checked all the boxes of the meeting. Because if you just go in and check the boxes of the meeting, yeah, great, you did your job, but you didn't really develop any relationship with that client. You didn't develop any stickiness, as we call it. So I think those type of things are probably what I would consider to be the more important things. And so the after action report is less about a typical debrief, which is what happened, what are the key action items, and it's more about an opportunity for like what you said, leadership development and taking it as an opportunity to find areas for improvement or things that we could have done better the next time. Oh, absolutely. There's a place for both, right? There's a place to look at what was done and did you meet your metrics? The client required 400 site visits within a certain period of time. Did you meet them all? And if the answer is yes, you get a little check mark, great. But there's more to it than that. Whether or not you did a site visit and were able to visit the client location, that's great. You can put check that box and say you were there. But what did you do when you were there? What did you find? Was there any value that you could add to that client while you were there? Hey, while I was at your site last Thursday, I noticed there was a hole in the back fence. I also noticed you got some construction going on. But while that construction's going on, we should probably close that hole in the fence because does that leave your site vulnerable, but it leaves the opportunity for construction equipment to go missing. Or, hey, when I was on the site, I noticed one of my officers was sitting down during a peak time. And when I approached them about it, they told me that they were sitting down because they had to monitor a computer screen. If we can go ahead and make that computer screen mobile, more like an iPad type of situation, they can set it up at a station and then they can assist through an egress situation where maybe they're checking bags or wanding people, but they can still keep an eye on the things that they need to keep an eye on. There's multiple ways we can identify things that can optimize the performance of our team or save a dollar or make things more efficient. And I think those are the things that we can do that would add value to a client. And if we're adding value to a client and if we're constantly thinking about them and their facility and their needs, there's more of a chance that we're actually going to retain that client. And retaining that client is more important than checking off a box. I think that the listeners can really learn through some stories. So we'd love to hear about some just more either wins or big fubs that you have gained some insights from with regards to this. And so we're going to get into that as soon as we get back from break. Hey, y'all, today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media, and we are a podcast and content creation. We like to think of ourselves as genius makers because chances are, if you're listening to this, you've got a passion, a product, a mission, a message, a a service, something that you want to get out to the world, but may not have the time, team, or the tech skills to be able to do it. If that's the case, we can help. Go to AmplifyMedia.com. That's A-M-P-L-A-F-Y Media.com. We'll also put the link in the show notes as well. And with that, let's get back to the episode with Jay. 
So Jay, I don't know how much you can share with us and I don't know how much you're willing to share because maybe it's your experience or something that you've seen from the sidelines, but I'd love for you to give the listeners more context on why this might matter. I think so many times someone's listening to this and whether they're in the position of being able to need help, even then they're saying, I don't need this. But then some might not be in a position to have a global compound or they may not have this large facility to keep track of. So is there any stories that kind of just highlight the general business wisdom of incorporating this kind of thinking into your business or into your leadership? Are there things that even from a business or an operator sense, something that people would understand regardless of the industry or organization that they're in? Sure. Would you like me to basically gear a story based around a smaller scenario? Musical project to me is a smaller scenario because you're working on one project. Usually an entrepreneur scenario where be working in the music industry is tough. And it's one of those situations, just like anything else, it's like being a podcaster. It's you're developing your own business, your own brand for yourself. And as a producer, as an engineer in the industry, you have to hunt for your own work. So you become that marketer, that salesperson. You're trying to convince people why they should be coming to you to perform the service. And if you're lucky enough to land that person, that potential client, and now you have to then go ahead and perform the service that you are marketing. And then while you're performing that service, you have to get it ready and organize each individual within that process, whether that be a team of musicians, whether that be a recording studio, whether that be a publishing company. You have to keep everybody in line. So you're basically managing the project from start to finish. But while you're doing all of that, you can't overlook how it started, which was marketing the service in order to get the work, because you have to then go back while you're doing this job and you have to keep up with the marketing of the service because you'll need the next job ready to go when this one finishes. Otherwise, a big mistake a lot of people make, they market the service, they land the service, they get the job, they do their work, they're organizing the work of everybody else. And then when the project gets ready for release way down the line, they're like, great. And then they go back to the beginning. And what ends up happening at that point is they leave a large gap of time, which is a loss of money. There's no money coming in during that gap of time. So you have to realize, I'm not a fan of multitasking, but this is something that has to be done. You have to be continuously marketing the service while performing the job you're on, constantly thinking of what the next one is going to be. You've got that rotation going. You market, you start, you go. You market, you start, you go, and you just keep doing it the whole time. And then you've got to manage the whole thing. So it becomes a project management. It becomes a large project that you have to manage from start to finish. So you have to start thinking to yourself, in this world, if you're going to go ahead and record a band, you're going to need a recording studio that's large enough to fit a full drum set, maybe eight musicians, and record everybody at one time. And if you do that, okay, that's great. You record that band, but you can't say, okay, I'm going to record this song today and then go into a smaller studio tomorrow and then go into a vocal studio the next day because you go through to that all for one song and then you got to go back and start over for song two and then start over for song three. You have to think more in a way of, okay, today I'm going to record in the large studio, I'm going to record the basics of all 10 songs, which would be, say, the drum kit for all 10 songs. Then I'm going to go into the medium studio, maybe the next day, and I'm going to record the overdubs of the instruments for all 10 songs. 
and then I'll go into the vocal studio last and record all 10 songs. So you're optimizing the time in each one of these studios because the studios cost a lot of money. A large studio can cost you about $3,000 a day. And if you're spending $3,000 a day, and then you could also spend maybe $500 for the day for the producer, or maybe $500 for an engineer, and maybe $300 for an assistant engineer, and then a few hundred dollars for each musician that works on every three-hour block because Nashville's a union-based city. So if you do all of these things and you're working with all of these people, you're spending a lot of money. It's not hard at all to spend a lot of money if you're not paying attention. So if you pay a little bit more attention to what you're doing and you're organized, that's how you become a good project manager. And it doesn't matter what the industry is. It doesn't matter what you're managing. You're managing a project and you're managing something that is going to require the spending of a lot of money. And that money is usually limited. How much money do we have to do this project? So you have to be able to manage somebody else's money efficiently. And I think that's something we can apply to any industry, anything we're doing, whether we're a freelance graphic artist, whether we're a podcaster, starting our own podcast and running it, trying to get ads and do everything. Because once you get an ad, you think to yourself, great, I've got an ad and now I'm good. But then that ad pulls. They only spend a certain amount of time and then you start looking for the next one. But if you were looking for the next one while that one was running, then there's a better chance that gap between the two is going to be smaller. And we plan all of these things, the cost of the equipment to run a podcast, the cost of the marketing to market the podcast or record or the graphic work we're doing, any one of these things. This is really where things come into play. And I really think it's about being a quality project manager, because if you're not a quality project manager, what ends up happening is you blow through the budget. You spend too much money and it's very easy to do that. Are there any times, you don't have to name any names, but are there any times that you can think of where it went different than you had anticipated or things got more expensive than you were thinking they were going to be? Absolutely. There's plenty of times. For example, I had this rock band and they wanted to come to Nashville and they wanted to record a record the same way that the pros do and they wanted to be the next big thing. And they were a big rock band. So they came down to Nashville and they recorded think they were from Pennsylvania. They came to Nashville. They wanted to record. We set them up and they were playing all sorts of shows around the country and it was great. So when we said, hey, what's the budget? What are we working with? How are we going to do this? They said what the budget was and what they were hoping to get out of it. And the very first day in the studio, it was clear that they could not perform at the level needed in order to put the project together for that dollar amount. And we had to sit down and have a very serious conversation. Look, I know you want to put together a 10-song album, but the 10-song album will cost leaps and bounds more than expected because of the performance level. So let me show you what we can do performance-wise. And we spent about an hour or two showing them what we can do to tweak things. And then we leave the decision up to them. Look, we can go ahead and record all 10 songs, but they're going to be at this quality here. Or what we showed you over the past couple hours, we can record three to five songs like that. And then you can go ahead and release an EP of five songs or three songs. And we leave the decision up to them to decide. And nine out of 10 times, they want to go with the what's going to make them sound the best. So they're going to go with the EP or the smaller project. Less time in the studio or less money spent to have that time in the studio. But there's things like that. And there's big projects too. I've worked on big country records, especially with the invention of auto-tune, right? Everybody wants to sing and everybody wants their vocal to be fixed and to be perfect. And we get that. I understand. I'm not for or against auto-tune. If used at the right times for the right situation, maybe you had a singer just 
deliver the performance of their life. And at one point, they went a little flat. If I can go ahead and correct that and capture that performance that they gave, I'm all for it. But when I go in and work with a producer who wants every single word of a singer who doesn't need to be tuned, but they want every single word tuned just because everybody else is doing it, not only is that a disservice to the vocalist, the singer, but it's also a waste of time, money, and to do that because you're in a studio, so you're paying, say, a minimum $500 a day for that studio. You're spending the producer's time of, say, $500 for that, or engineer's time, another $500, the assistant, another three. So you're spending all this money to correct something that doesn't need to be corrected. It's, to me, negligence. It's just not necessary whatsoever. It's just great observation and insight about trends and tradition. Jay, as we round out and wrap up here, I'm curious for you, when you look forward to 2024 and the industries that you're in and and working around, are there things that you are looking forward to or things that you are excited about, whether it's technology or trends or geopolitical movements? When you look forward to this upcoming year, what are some things that you are looking forward to? Obviously, technology moves so fast that I'm always interested to see what's next. In our world, in the audio world, podcast worlds, we buy equipment, we buy microphones, we buy recorders, we buy all sorts of things. And when the Caster Pro came out for podcasters, it was like revolutionary. It was just a great piece of equipment. I'm always interested to see what's coming down the pike for those type of things. I work on my podcast. I interview a bunch of people from the entertainment industry and we talk about the behind the scenes stuff. I'm lucky enough that I've met these people throughout the years and can call on them to come on the show and talk and we share some great stories and it's really cool. But also doing that, I've had a chance to go do some of the interviews in person or go talk to some of these people in person. And I enjoy that. I love going to their shows and sitting backstage and talking about things. And that type of stuff is fun. But that has led recently to an interview I did last week. It was released. A guy named Drew Phillips. He used to play in a pretty large rock band in the 90s. And he's connected to all the musicians on the East Coast and in this general area. And there's a venue that puts on shows and he is trying to make arrangements with that venue for us to go down there and interview all those people. So I'm excited for those type of things. But then I'm also excited to see where the security world goes as well. I didn't get into the security world because of security or because of those things. I got into it as a transition from entertainment. We were doing executive protection, like we worked with Iron Maiden and bands like that. And we would send security details so that they would pick them up from hotels drive them through the tunnels to an arena so that they can escort them into the show and just make sure that they got through from point A to point B without being hassled too much. And we would get them there. And those type of things were fun and great. But that led into the bigger things, which then led into doing tech companies and so on. And then I got to witness things that I never thought existed. I don't know if you remember back a few years ago, YouTube had a shooting on their campus. And when that happened, We put all sorts of undercover agents on YouTube or Facebook on their campuses just to make sure that employees were safe. And overseeing those global operations and seeing what's going on and how they work around the world, it's been amazing. And we even had a situation once where, fairly recently, where a CEO of an organization, one of the tech firms, was going down to South America, and they ended up getting kidnapped. And we got a call saying, hey so-and-so is kidnapped and something needs to be done. And they sent in a security team. I did not. They did. They sent in a security team that went in and recovered the person. It was like something out of a Jason Bourne movie. It was amazing. So just the simple fact that I get to see all these things and get to experience it, it's fun. So I'm always looking to see what's new in that world as well. 
Fun is an interesting word that you use. I'd imagine exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. For me, it's probably not exciting for the people who are going through the drama at the time. You get a nice vantage point. This has been really fun. And NJ, you're doing a lot both with your business and then also putting out content as well. If people want to get more connected with you and, and dive deeper in your world, where's the best place and how should they go about that? You can find everything you need to know over at jfranzi.com. That's J-A-Y-F-R-A-N-Z-E.com. We'll link this up into show notes as well. And my last question for you, Jay, is in your opinion, what is the secret to scaling a business? I think the secret to scaling a business is not necessarily trying to grow your top line revenue by taking on new clients. I think it's by pleasing the current clients. If you please your current clients, that business will grow, which will then in turn grow your top line revenue. And it could be anything. It could be as simple as that smaller project I was talking about earlier. It could be these large global security networks. But if you please your current book of business, your current clients, those are the ones that will grow. And as they grow, you'll make more money. And then as they grow, they'll recommend more people to you. So I think focusing on what you currently have is more important than always trying to find something new great advice. I want to thank you listeners for sticking with us today. We would appreciate and love a rating or review wherever you get your podcast. And if you know someone who's running a business in the midst of scaling this, I'd love if you hit that little share button and send them a text and let them know that they might enjoy this episode. Go get connected with Jay and myself on LinkedIn and we'll see you on the next one.